After a firefight, they Welcome to Forecast Roundtable, Forecast International's podcast on worldwide defense and aerospace markets. We're covering today the Middle East defense markets. Um, we have Derek Basacchio, International Military Markets Analyst for the Middle East, and Dan Darling, who covers Asia and Europe. And uh, my name is Doug Royce. I cover aircraft, uh, helicopters, and engines. When we talk about the Persian Gulf, we're always concerned about that area because of the amount of oil that flows through um, the region, and, and it, uh, it is the lifeblood of, of the world economy. We've seen the price of oil decline, and so I guess my next question is, what's happening with defense budgets in the region now that the price of oil is going down? So the defense budgets in the region, and this is very very telling, have, if they have fallen, they haven't fallen that much. For the most part, they've either plateaued or they're still increasing. One of the things is a lot of these countries, they have, because of the years of really high oil prices, they've been able to build up these surpluses. They have a lot of essentially rainy day funds that they can use to buy military equipment, and they're taking advantage of it. Kuwait earlier this year uh, approved a general uh, reserve fund. They were initially looking for $20 billion over the next uh, decade. They got half of that. They got $10 billion. And they're using that to finance, in part, their uh, new purchase of Eurof Eurofighter typhoons. And so what a lot of these countries are doing is, even if they are reducing their official defense budget, they're not really reducing their procurements and the amount that they're actually spending on their own national security isn't really dipping at all. In fact, it's probably increasing. And they have the type of money to be able to do this. If they need to, they can seek foreign loans. There was a report that, that Qatar actually had sought loans from Japan to purchase uh, Rafals. Oh, the Rafal deal, yeah. yeah. And what they, I mean, when they do that, what they can do is because they you know, have a lot of money that's stored up, they can get these loans at very low interest rates because creditors can generally assume that they've got very good credit. Right. And so even though they've you know seen a loss in their revenue, that's not uh, contributing to a loss in their defense expenditures. So how does Israel feel about this defense buildup that's happening in the, the GCC? I mean, is the, what's, what's their position? The, they're definitely concerned about it. They've, especially the, you know, the fighter jet sales, I think, are their, their big thing that they've been concerned about. So what they've been doing, and I mean, constantly, they're, you know, worried about that. They're also always worried about Iran. They're worried about, you know, militant groups in the area, Hamas, but especially Hezbollah. So they've been additionally building up their air defense systems. They've been, uh, they're actually starting to take delivery of the David Sling system, which is going to mostly replace kind of the, the Patriot system. And they're also working on their uh, higher altitude uh, air defense. And this will allow them to address threats from, from Iran as well, but also it'll give them just greater security in their own defense posture. Right. They've increased their order of F-35s. They did this last year. They increased it to 33. And there's been talk that they might increase it again to 50 throughout this year. There's apparently still negotiations on that. And Israel remains confident that at least in the near term, the Gulf won't receive the F-35. So Israel's banking a lot on the F-35, giving them that edge over the, the GCC in particular. Because right. as, as you noted earlier, Iran's fighter inventories are nothing that Israel has to worry about. It's nothing that the Gulf has to worry about. I don't even think 
Qatar with its nine fighters has anything to worry about from, yes. from Iran. So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Iran's fighter jets there, some of them are actually still relics of when the U.S. was still friends with right. Iran while the Shah was in power. And other ones, I mean, they've been working to get SU-30s, for example, from Russia, uh, but the United States has recently said that we would that the United States would block that. Right. These, I think I think that was one of the, the security in council. the past couple of weeks. That was one of the major concerns because those are very advanced aircraft, and that would be a huge upgrade upgrade in uh, capability for them. So I, I think from the F thirty five standpoint, what's interesting is that you see a lot of criticism of the F thirty five program, but Israel's acceptance of the aircraft, both its acceptance of it and its complaints and its worries over the Gulfs, the Saudis, or someone else getting it are really good publicity for the F-35 because that, that shows that Israel, who is highly respected air arm, uh, independent of the U.S. assessment, is saying this is, this is going to be a good aircraft for us, and they know about the aircraft. Um, that's just tossing in some military aircraft stuff for me. Just wait till they uh, lift the OB amendment and restart the F-22 line. We'll see what Israel's yeah. concerns are when Saudi Arabia buys some, <laughs> buys some F-22s. Yeah. I don't think we'll be seeing that. I don't think we'll see either thing happen. And that, uh, you know, the F-22 is is the line to start. It would be pretty expensive. Um, Japan is is buying. Well, now that we're not going to Asian Japan. That's going a little far afield. So I think we've covered everything um, that we're going to cover about the Middle East, other than perhaps um, Israel and Turkey seem to be repairing their relationship. It had gotten very fractured. Can someone describe what had happened to the relationship and where it's, what's been going on? Um, the relationship had begun to splinter a bit. It, it, there were several things that were going on. One was Turkey had... Um, traditionally placed its foreign policy emphasis northward and westward. Um, after the AKP government was elected in 2002, slowly but surely it was shifting some of that attention into the Middle East. And would it be fair to say they're sort of an Islamic-oriented? They're, they're yes. Islamicist? Uh, I mean, they're not radical, but they're definitely Islamist. Um, but they had begun shifting some of that attention into what were, was formerly their Ottoman backyard of the Middle East. And relations between Syria and um, Ankara had grown close by 2009. They conducted their first live joint military training exercise so that didn't sit well with the Israelis. You had the incident uh, with the, the boat that the Israeli Navy intercepted that was heading for the Gaza Strip with humanitarian supplies. Right. And At a time when the Gaza Strip was isolated. Right. And the, so no. that was pretty much the uh, tip the balance in relations. And, and Turkey's... Uh, at that time, Prime Minister Erdogan uh, had used these incidents as momentum both internally and externally, Turkey projecting into the Muslim world. We're standing up to Israel, and it was a right. whole neo-Ottoman approach. Um, and so relations, which had traditionally been very good, Turkey was the first country to recognize the first Arab 
or Muslim majority uh, state, I should say, that to recognize Israel. Um, they had been very close, particularly in the defense um, aspect. The two militaries conducted training together. Uh, Israel helped Turkey set up its indigenous defense industrial sector. The Turkish armed forces were not as happy about the splinter in the relationship as the AKP government was. Um, And both sides, when push came to shove around 2011 and 2012, both both sides were very um, lacking in diplomacy towards each other. There were several small incidents, but these add up. And now they appear to be coming back together, which I think for both countries could be a good thing, particularly in defense trade. Um, now, are they big trading partners on defense? They were, but uh, that completely halted after right. a, a diplomatic spat. Yeah, and I think what we've seen is that as, as Turkey's found a lot more issues, at least in dealing with its Syria policy and in dealing with Russia's intervention into Syria, uh, you see, you've seen uh, them kind of try to rekindle their relationship with Israel around a month or so after there was the uh, big flare-up in tensions between Turkey and Russia over Turkey shooting down an SU-24. You know, very quickly after that, they announced that they were working on a reconciliation agreement with Israel. This had been something that analysts had talked about for a while, that a lot of people had talked about for a while, but there wasn't really any a whole lot of official recognition that this process was going on. And very quickly after, they announced that they were doing it and that they had resolved most of the issues. There's still, uh, especially over the Gaza Strip, there's still a sticking point between the two. But these are issues that they've, you know, dealt with in, you know, in the past, or at least have accepted in the past between uh, each other's differences, and have usually been able to, you know, work with it, which gives the indication that chances are they'll be able to reconcile this. You know, their dispute is nothing that's uh, permanently damaging to their relations. It's definitely something that, given the will, they can fix very right. quickly. And the the announcement that they would be, you know, working on that process very quickly after, you know, Turkey started to run into issues with Russia speaks to me that it was more an issue of political will than an actual divide between the two countries. All right. You know, there's there's one one last thing I'd like to, to ask, and this is going to come from left field. When you talk about the defense trade now, the defense trade between the Arab world and Europe, United States is well known. What about between the defense trade between um, the Arab world and China? Is that is 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 that going to grow? Is that is that about is that a very small amount? Because I'm just kind of curious. You know, is that going to be a future competitor for U.S. and European companies? I would say more for Russian companies. Oh, so they're going to draw from the same pool. Exactly when it will shrink or make it harder for Russia to control markets that it controls, Iran will be one of those markets. Right. But China has begun selling more and more hardware, uh, UAVs to Saudi Arabia, um, as their defense industry and their product line grows. Uh, they are certainly um, aggressive sales pitchers, but they also, unlike the U.S. and to a lesser degree Europe, there are no political strings attached, right. which is right. um, most well, important I think the, for the buyer. And I think the always the interesting thing about the Middle East for most of the countries, not not it doesn't apply to countries like Yemen, which are traditionally not huge buyers of weapons, 
has been these are the customers who can afford the best equipment. The Saudis, for example, always come in, they buy the best goods, and they, they, can, they can pay top dollar. And China is traditionally an exporter of lower-priced armaments. Um, is there any – would we see greater reliance in the future on China as an arms supplier from some of those GCC countries who can really buy from anybody? You know, the U.S., if, if they decide to go out and buy Chinese missiles, the U.S. is not going to come in and tell Bahrain, you can't do it. Um, but yeah. is, is there any chance of that happening? There's a chance of it, and it, it depends on, you know, specific circumstances, specifically uh, political circumstances as well. Yeah, as you're saying, I mean, the Gulf has the type of money to be picky in what it is they want. They, you know, if they, if they have, you know, a couple options, they can really weigh it out. They can see which options have worked not only for you know, other countries as well, but for them. And typically they've, you know, when they've found a supplier that works, they typically stick with that supplier. But what could happen is if Western countries in particular, which have a lot of export controls, if they start having more issues with that, for example, Saudi Arabia uh, recently has received a lot of flack from both European and uh, from both uh, and Canadian critics over arms sales. And what could end up happening now, this wouldn't be something that would happen tomorrow. This would be something that would happen over time is that they might start trying to explore other options. Now, Chinese products at the moment are relatively they're unfamiliar with how they function and how well they are you know, in an actual battlefield. And but what can happen is as China markets these as China markets these successfully, then countries can start to get more of an interest. It's you know, tough to project whether or not that shift would happen. As Dan was saying, I think Russia probably has more to worry about than that, uh, than, than the West than does. The for the, the, yeah, Western than, Europe. Yeah, that Europe, United States, that uh, those arms uh, you know, firms have to worry about. But at the same time, I definitely think China is, is working its way into, you know, into cracking the Middle East market. They've just had the issue of they're a newer, uh, newer competitor and their systems haven't been, you know, aren't well known. Right. Even their newer systems. Yeah, I think there's often uh, a hesitancy also to buy weapons and uh, advanced military equipment from from a supplier that you you're you're not familiar with. You're not familiar how they support it. You don't have those relationships built up. Thank you for joining us at Forecast Roundtable. For more information on international aerospace and defense markets, visit www.forecastinternational.com.